Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Some of you, I'm sure, um, watched the wonderful memorial service for Peter Maiden last Sunday. And uh, there was a story emerging from that service about Peter Maiden's love for pink shirts. And uh, one particular story was uh, he was getting ready to preach one day, um, opened the, the cupboard at home, and uh, got out what he thought was a pink shirt, and it turned out to be his wife's blouse. <laughs> Thankfully, she spotted it before he left the building. But I was thinking of that story this morning when I got up in the dark and was reaching for my pink shirt. And I am assured this is not my wife's blouse. So uh, uh, we'll see how the pink shirts go this week. Please do have your Bibles open at Ephesians. Um, we're going to be looking at the first three chapters this week because there's so much in this book. Um, but before we get into it, I, I hope we can agree together on uh, these three words over here to my left. This is, this is why we're here this week. Um, our aim this week is not for you to worship the book of Ephesians. It's a beautiful book. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you gain some great insights from it. But we want to hear God's Word. That's where it starts. But we want to come with hungry hearts so that when we hear God's Word, we are becoming like God's Son. We don't want to worship Ephesians. We want to worship the Christ that Ephesians points us to. So you might say at the end of this week, um, how much have I taken from the Bible readings? Well, another good way to ask that question is how much am I becoming like Jesus? 
Do I feel closer to Jesus at the end of this week? And then, of course, after we hear God's word and become like God's son, we want to serve God's mission because that's what Christ did. He stepped across the stars to come and be born as a baby and live his life among men and die on a cross for our salvation and rise again on the third day. He served God's mission to the very end. And may we all be inspired this week as we read God's word and become like God's son to serve God's mission wherever he has placed us. Now, I wonder um, if you have ever pressed reply all on an email by mistake. Maybe an email to a group of elders or a group of home group members or worse still, a group that included your mother-in-law. You intended the message for just one person in the group. There were sensitivities in the message that meant you, you really didn't want everyone to see it. But by mistake, you pressed reply all, and you had that sinking feeling in your stomach. This really wasn't meant for everyone. Now, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a reply all kind of letter, but in a good way. His message really was meant for everyone. Ephesians is unique in the New Testament because it wasn't written to one particular church. Now, that may surprise you. After all, it probably says at the top of your page, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. But the word Ephesus in chapter 1, verse 1, actually appeared quite late in the original manuscripts. The letter was probably an open letter. It's most likely that it began in Ephesus, which was a key city in Asia where Paul spent two years of ministry life. But the letter then did a, a kind of a circular tour of all the churches in Asia. And that's important to realize as we begin this series because Ephesians doesn't deal with the problems or the issues of one particular congregation. You might remember when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he deals with their particular issues of leadership conflict and how to use your spiritual gifts and so on. When he writes to the Galatians, he's angry with them. He confronts them because they were abandoning the gospel. That was particular to that congregation. And even Paul's letter to the Romans is written to a church where relationships between Jews and Gentiles were strained, and the letter reflects that situation. But in Ephesians, more than any other New Testament letter, Paul seems to be writing to every church. It's a reply all to the church in every age. And in this wonderful letter that Martin Lloyd-Jones called the peak of Pauline theology, Paul wants to give us a big picture view of God's plans for the church. That's Paul's main theme in Ephesians. Paul takes a step back from the issues facing any particular church and he gives a big vision of what the church is all about. And I think that's really helpful as we come to the Keswick Convention this year. One of the great blessings of Keswick is that you can come away from the very particular issues in your local church, perhaps the burdens that you are carrying, and remind yourself of God's big picture vision for the church. God wants to refresh you and encourage you this week so that you can go back to your local situation renewed and revitalized and grateful 
for all that you have in Jesus Christ. Now, there is so much truth packed into the six chapters of Ephesians that we're actually going to look at just the first three chapters. We're going to spend all our time there this week. And I think there's good reason for that. There is a doxology, a kind of closing prayer halfway through the letter at the end of chapter three. And the prayer ends with those famous words, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. It's a kind of closing prayer for the church and forms a crescendo to the wonderful panorama of salvation that, God, that Paul gives us in these first three chapters. So the book of Ephesians is all about God's plan from eternity to eternity to redeem a people from him, for himself through the blood of Christ, to draw us together in Christ from all our different cultures and backgrounds, and to shower His grace on us forever. And when you see the beauty of those themes, you can understand why Ephesians is many people's favorite portion of Scripture. And I think we really need to hear its message, perhaps this year more than any other year. With all the confusion and uncertainty that COVID has caused, with the fear from the war in Ukraine, with the rise of the cost of living, and perhaps in your personal life, with the tremors in your own heart this morning, your family situation, your job situation, your health scenario, it's more important than ever to take a step back and to soak in God's big picture of redemption, to remind yourself of, of who we are as the church together, God's blood-bought people. And of course, the big theme of Keswick this year is grateful. And if we're not grateful at the end of this series, then I really haven't preached Ephesians properly. And we begin this big picture letter this morning looking at all our blessings in Christ. That's where Paul begins the letter. Paul wants you this morning to savor all of your blessings in Christ. And he does this in possibly the most beautiful paragraph in the whole of Scripture. Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. And Paul tells us four things in this incredibly rich paragraph about our blessings in Christ. So firstly, he says, our blessings are spiritual. That's verse 3 of the passage. Our blessings are spiritual. Verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, this opening paragraph is actually one long sentence in the Greek. It's a sentence with 202 words in it. Now, the average length of a sentence in English, according to Google, is 15 to 20 words, and we really shouldn't go beyond 25 words. But Paul has gone eight times longer here. It's the kind of sentence that our English teachers would have screamed at us for. But words of praise keep cascading off Paul's quill. And just when you think he's going to put a full stop in there somewhere, the next blessing just comes into his head. And I want you to notice that praise language fills the whole paragraph. So in verse 6, he says, to the praise of his glorious grace. 
Verse 12 again, to the praise of His glory. Verse 14 again, to the praise of His glory. Armitage Robinson said, this paragraph is like the preliminary flight of the eagle, rising and wheeling around as though for a while uncertain what direction in his boundless freedom he will take. As Paul thinks of all of his spiritual blessings in Christ, past, present, and future, blessings that he's going to enumerate for us from verse 4 onwards, his heart soars like an eagle, which is quite remarkable. Remarkable when you realize that Paul is writing this paragraph from a prison cell, probably in Rome. In chapter 3, verse 1, he calls himself the prisoner of Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verse 1, he calls himself a prisoner of the Lord. And of course, this isn't the first time that Paul has been in prison. He spent two years in prison in Caesarea and a night in prison in Philippi. That's where you'll remember that he and Silas began singing hymns at midnight. In fact, from the moment Paul went through his miraculous conversion experience on the Damascus Road, Paul had been hounded for his life. You'll remember in 2 Corinthians 9, he describes his sufferings. Several times he is beaten to within an inch of his life. He is stoned. He is publicly abused. He is threatened at every turn. And he's practically penniless everywhere he goes. We see him returning to his trade as a tent maker so that he doesn't have to ask the local churches for money. And in 1 Thessalonians, he seems to work on tents by day, and he pastors the people by night. Day and night I worked among you, he says. It is a life of relentless toil, and now he's in prison again. And this is the man whose heart is soaring like an eagle. He's praising God for all of his spiritual blessings from a prison cell. I find this so challenging to my own life. If you and I could grasp this morning the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, our hearts would sing as well, no matter what's going on physically in our lives right now. These blessings can make your heart sing, regardless of your circumstances. And all of Paul's blessings are our blessings. The whole paragraph is full of we and us. Did you notice that? He has blessed us. He has chosen us. He has predestined us. So these blessings are not for some kind of spiritual elite. Every child of God shares these blessings. Whether you feel that you're living a stellar Christian life right now, or you're crippled by guilt at some sin that you keep returning to, these blessings are yours this morning, right now. And if we fully grasped our spiritual blessings in Christ, we would look at our current circumstances in a whole new way. I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but I imagine a fair few of us are going through huge struggles health-wise or family-wise or church-wise. Maybe you're glad to get to Keswick just for a breather. But Paul's prison praise encourages us that we can still worship in our struggles. 
In fact, intentionally focusing on our blessings in Christ puts our current struggles into their proper context. You remember Paul's words to the Corinthians. He says, our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us a glory that will far outweigh them all. Now, of course, our afflictions, when you're going through afflictions, they, they never appear light and momentary. They didn't appear momentary to Paul either. He, he itemizes his afflictions. His life was full of affliction. He's not belittling the sense that there are real afflictions, but he says, compared to the glory that is to come, then our afflictions are light and momentary. Compared to these spiritual blessings in Christ, our afflictions are coming and going. The thing that will not last in your life is the pain. Your suffering has a sell-by date, but these blessings that Paul will enumerate will last forever. And Paul is teaching us here, and this is so key to understanding the whole letter to the Ephesians, Paul is teaching us that the life of a Christian is lived out on two different planes. This is really important to grasp. On the one hand, we all live on an earthly plane where sometimes we lose our jobs or fail our exams or struggle with depression or face family breakdown or have to watch our loved ones suffer with dementia. That's the stuff of real life. But we also live at the same time on a heavenly plane. Christ has brought the life of heaven into our hearts while we live with all the struggles of earth. And this verse, verse 3 says, God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul uses this phrase, heavenly realms, five times in the book of Ephesians. He doesn't use it anywhere else. It's unique to Ephesians. These heavenly realms are not some kind of out-of-body experience. They're not a trick of the mind. Every Christian in this room today is right now a citizen of heaven. We are living in heavenly realms. In fact, in chapter 2, Paul says, we are seated with Christ in heavenly realms. Not, we will be seated one day when we get to heaven, but right now we are seated with Christ. We already share in Christ's cosmic victory over the forces of evil right here, right now, and we have just begun to experience eternal life as we await for its full reality at the second coming of Christ. And so our inspiration for living right now as Christians doesn't come from whether we're feeling well or not, or whether we've gained promotion at work or just lost our job, or whether our daughter has been awarded her degree last week. Those are passing joys, those are earthbound joys, our inspiration comes from the life of heaven that has already invaded our hearts and will never leave our hearts. Paul, the man who is in raptures here, Paul never enjoyed great financial or physical blessings. I wonder what the prosperity teachers would think of Paul here. Paul's life was the epitome of rugged he compared his apostleship to being the last man dragged into the arena to die. God doesn't promise us great wealth or even good health when we follow him. 
In fact, it is suffering that most often chisels out the likeness of Christ in us. No, our focus is on spiritual blessings in heavenly realms. We live on earth, but we are citizens of heaven, citizens of eternity. I was born in Belfast, so I am officially both Irish and British. And being an Irishman suddenly became a huge benefit when Brexit occurred. Many Brits were queuing up to claim any Irish heritage they could find so that they could get an Irish passport. And while many of you will have headaches standing in long queues at the airport waiting to get into an EU country, any Irish man or woman can simply flash their Irish passport with a smile. There has to be something good about being Irish. And Paul is saying here, we have two passports as believers. The passport that shows that you're a citizen of the UK, you're a citizen of this world with all its triumphs and as well as its troubles, but we also have an invisible passport that has been stamped with the blood of Christ that confirms that you are a citizen of heaven where there will be no more tears or pain or sadness or mourning or regret. We are seated right now with Christ in heavenly realms, enjoying His victory over evil and looking forward to the glory that is to come. So when your earthly citizenship is causing you grief, then intentionally focus your heart on your heavenly citizenship until your heart starts to soar like an eagle. So Paul is teaching us here about all our blessings in Christ. And he says, firstly, our blessings are spiritual. Secondly, he says, our blessings are personal. That's verses 4 to 8 of the passage. Our blessings are personal. In these verses, Paul begins to enumerate now all the spiritual blessings that he has received from God's hand. And what strikes you as he sets out these blessings is that they are so personal, blessings that each one of us can take to heart this morning. And there are three key words that Paul uses in these verses that display God's personal commitment to us. So verse 4 uses the word chosen. The verse says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. In love, He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Now, here we have the mysterious doctrine of election. This verse is saying that before time began, before you and I were even a spark in our parents' eyes, God chose you to be His child. Now, a lot of Christians get very unsettled by the doctrine of election. So did I when I first learned about it. But to Paul, election is a theme of praise. That's why his heart is soaring in a prison cell. Don't shy away from the fact that God chose you just because it raises some awkward questions in your mind. The scholar Clint Arnold said, the doctrine of election is the key premise for all the praise in this paragraph. Just look at how many times election is referenced here. Verse 4 says, we have been chosen. 
Verse 5, we have been predestined. Verse 5 again, according to the purpose of His will. Verse 7, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Verse 11, having been predestined. Verse 11 again, in accordance with the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. You just cannot miss the sovereignty of God as the central thrust of all Paul's praise here. Salvation is God's doing. As Jonah said in the belly of the fish, salvation belongs to the Lord. God takes the initiative. And divine election is the thread that knits all of these blessings together. And so whatever questions you have this morning about election, and we all have them, I certainly do, don't run away from election as a concept or say it's not in the Bible. Election is clearly and repeatedly in the Bible, and it's almost always a theme of joy and praise. Now, of course, however we understand election, we must make sure that we don't end up with a God who kind of pretends to offer us salvation with one hand while taking it away with another. God is not cold and calculating, and if you hear a message that makes Him sound cold and calculating, you know it's not true. Jesus passionately invites people to come to Him. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Our choices as human beings are taken very seriously throughout Scripture. And how divine election and human responsibility come together is a mystery. We need to open our minds to mystery, worshiping the God that we worship. And we get into trouble if we try and systematize this mystery too much. But the Bible repeatedly teaches that every person who chooses Christ today, makes that valid choice, was chosen by God before the world began. We choose Christ today because God first chose us. Now, some people try and get out of the mystery by saying, well, you know, God knew in advance that we were going to choose Him, and He just rubber-stamped that choice in the past. But that is not what predestined or the closely related verb foreknew that we find in, in, in Romans 8. That's not what those verbs mean. The verb foreknew means that God was already in relationship with us before we were even born. Now, that is just impossible for us to understand on a human level. And I don't need to understand it all before I revel in the wonderful truth that God chose me. God choosing us is the ultimate expression of His love for us. That's how Paul begins. In love, He predestined us. So if you take away the doctrine of election, then you diminish the love of God. Election is something to celebrate. In fact, it's a wonderfully freeing doctrine. God didn't choose us because of anything good in us. Verse 5 says God chose us in accordance with His pleasure and will. God chose us not because we are lovely, but because He is love. 
And that's precisely why Paul's heart is soaring here. Lord, you chose me simply because it pleased you to choose me. I don't have to earn your love. I am not on a performance-based contract with you. I live under the constant shadow of your grace. Now, of course, this word chosen doesn't imply that we can kind of sit around and do nothing as believers and kind of bask in the jacuzzi of God's grace. Being chosen should not lead us to spiritual inertia. It certainly didn't lead Paul into spiritual inertia, did it? And in fact, Paul says right away here in verse 5, he chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. So God's ultimate plan was that you and I would reflect the purity of Christ. Now, Paul is thinking ultimately here about us being presented holy and blameless to Christ at the end of time. But being presented holy and blameless doesn't take away the need for disciplined effort to grow in holiness day by day. And that is a real struggle, don't we know it? A struggle that demands real spiritual grit and perseverance, all empowered by the Holy Spirit. And of course, if you examine Paul's life, his love for the doctrine of election did not stop him being energetic and creative in his witnessing. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, he comes out with that extraordinary line, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. How did you get there, Paul? Well, Paul, who believed so fervently in God's sovereignty, was equally passionate about evangelism and using all the means and strategies available to us to persuade men and women. Divine election is not an excuse for laziness. God's sovereignty, when properly understood, is actually a spur for evangelism. But let's not shy away from this glorious mystery. He chose us before the world began. To rob ourselves of this doctrine is to rob ourselves of a truth that God has revealed for our joy and for our eternal confidence. And if you don't understand this morning how divine election and human responsibility work in tandem, then join the club. When Paul himself talked about the hardening of Israel, those difficult chapters, Romans 9 and 10, and God's purposes in election, even Paul doesn't claim to have worked the mystery out. How does Paul end that glorious section, end of Romans 11? He says, who has known the mind of the Lord? I'm very worried about scholars who claim to know the mind of the Lord because Paul didn't know it. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Wrestling with this doctrine only makes God bigger in our minds. And that is exactly where Paul wants to take us. I love that line in what is known as St. Anselm's ontological argument for the existence of God. I'm sure you've all read that thoroughly. Anselm writes this. This is the line. God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived. 
God is that than which nothing greater than can be conceived. In other words, God is greater, bigger, wiser than the greatest being that we could possibly imagine. So don't think you've worked him out or he's not the right God. God knew me in Christ before time began, and whatever I don't understand about that doctrine just increases my appreciation of his vastness. Our blessings in Christ this morning are so personal. We praise God because we were chosen. We also praise Him because He adopted us. Verse 5 says, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ. When Jesus came on the scene in first century Palestine, the prayers that He used to pray were different to any prayers the Jews had heard before. Jesus kept calling God, Father. Now, Jews never did that. The word Father is only used 14 times in the Old Testament to refer to God. And in each of those times, God is seen as the Father of Israel, the Father of the whole nation, not of individual people. But Jesus started every prayer with Father. And the word that he used for father was the most intimate word that you could find, the word Abba. That was a word that little children would use to describe their dads. They would run up on their dad's knee and say, Abba. Now, we can feel uncomfortable about that, but the eternal God of heaven has adopted you and me into his family. And God wants you, He longs for you to have the same intimacy with Him that a little girl has when she runs into her father's arms. The God who dwells in unapproachable light is your Abba Father. He chose to adopt you into His family before He threw a star into space. Those deep feelings that we have about our children and our grandchildren, they are a signpost of how God feels about us. Do you think that God feels more distantly about you than how you feel for your own children? Of course, Isaiah says, shall a, shall a mother forget the baby in her womb? Of course she can't, but even if she does, I will not forget you, O Israel. The God who invented those deep paternal emotions, He rejoices over you with singing. That's what Zephaniah teaches us. He's rejoicing over you today. God's blessings are so personal. He has chosen us, He has adopted us, and He has redeemed us. Familiar words, I know. Verse 7, in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. This word redeem came from the slave markets. If you wanted to redeem a slave, it meant you bought him back out of slavery. And of course, the whole Exodus story in the Old Testament is a picture of that. Israel were slaves in Egypt. God brought them out. He rescued them through the blood of the Lamb. The blood was the payment. So this idea of redemption is right the way through the Old Testament before we even get to Jesus. And this is precisely what God has done for us. You and I, we were born with a sin nature. And we are slaves to that sin nature all our lives. We cannot escape our inbuilt tendency to sin. Like Charles Wesley's famous hymn, we were fast bound in sin and nature's night. 
I am a sinner by nature as well as by choice. So I choose to sin because that's who I am. And of course, we stand under God's righteous condemnation. But Christ's death paid the price for our redemption. And this word redemption is often connected with the word ransom. The Son of Man gave His life as a ransom for many. So Jesus spilt His blood as a ransom payment to set us free from the chains of our sin. Jesus bought us. He paid the price that sets us free from our slavery to sin. The story is told of a boy who lived by a lake, and uh, this boy had a real love for boats. And so he made his own boat, and with the help of his dad and with great excitement, he took his boat out for a sail on his local lake every day. But one day, tragedy struck. A current of wind caught the boat at just the wrong time, and the boat disappeared. The boy went looking for it every day by the lake, but he couldn't find it. Then one day, a long time later, as he was walking by some shops, the boy saw his boat for sale in one of the shop windows. He was so excited. He went to the shopkeeper and told him that that boat belongs to me. But the shopkeeper said that he had bought it off a local fisherman. The boat was now for sale, and the price had to be paid. And so the boy went back home, and for a whole month, he did every odd job he could find around the house until he got the money he needed for the boat. And when he finally bought the boat, he clasped it to his chest, and he said, you are twice mine. I made you, and I bought you back again. Now, that is redemption. You and I belong to God twice over. He made us. He has creator's rights over us. And he has bought us back again with the precious blood of Christ. And of course, the implications for our lives this morning are just huge. We no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to the one who bought us with his own blood. That's what Paul says in Romans 6. I am a slave now of Jesus Christ. My body does not belong to me anymore. How we need to hear that today in these days of human rights and, and trans identity. You know, it's about what I feel and I'll change my body to make it look like what I feel. No. My body now belongs to Jesus Christ. And my job as a Christian is then to say, I will pour out every instrument, every part of my body in service to my master who bought me with his own blood. That's basic Christianity. God's blessings are so personal. He has chosen us, he has adopted us, and he has redeemed us. He has bought us back with the precious blood of Christ. So this wonderful paragraph is all about the blessings that we have in Christ. God's blessings are spiritual. His blessings are personal. Thirdly, His blessings are eternal. That's verses 9 to 10 of the passage. His blessings are eternal. So from the personal blessings that Paul has mentioned in verses 4 to 8, His eagle's wings now soar up high into the clouds, verses 9 to 10, to take in the full panorama of human history. 
the sovereign Lord who chose us personally and individually is also the God who is shaping history towards the conclusion that He has ordained for it. And His blessings aren't just for this life. They are eternal blessings. Verse 9 says, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ, verse 10, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. Now, this word mystery occurs again in chapter 3, referring to God's plan to save the world through Christ, a plan which was unclear in Old Testament times. It was a mystery. But God has now revealed this mystery to us, to New Testament believers, so it's not a mystery anymore. We have been let in on the secret. And the scale of this mysterious plan is breathtaking. Verse 10 says, God's plan is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth together under Christ. So God's plan takes in the entire cosmos. This is a merism. Heaven and earth means heaven and earth and everything in between, the entire universe. Hebrews 2 says that God is going to wrap up this current universe like a scroll, and He's going to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. 2 Peter says that the elements will burn with a, with a heat, a fervent heat. I don't know whether that's linked with global warming or not, but cataclysm is ahead. God planned cataclysm because there's going to be a new creation. We're talking on the level here of an entirely new cosmos. And Tom Wright calls it the coming together of heaven and earth. Remember Revelation? I saw the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven like a bride prepared for her husband. Wright said, our culture is so fixated on dying and going to heaven when the whole of Scripture is about heaven coming to earth. Now, that statement was controversial when he first made it, but it's true. It's very biblical. When we die now, when a loved one dies, their soul leaves their bodies immediately to be with Christ. They are disembodied spirits in the current heaven. Remember Paul saying, to be absent from the body is to be simultaneously present with the Lord. So, that's what happens when a loved one dies in Christ. But the current heaven where their souls go, that current heaven is as temporary as the current earth. In fact, John 14 verse 2, do you remember Jesus saying, in my Father's house are many rooms. The word that Jesus uses for rooms there means temporary abode. So, it's going to be glorious, but that's temporary. God is going to renew the entire created order, and He is going to fuse heaven and earth together. And we don't really have any vocabulary to describe what it's going to be like, but it's going to be breathtaking. And God has a time scale for this total renewal of heaven and earth. It will happen, Paul says, when the times reach their fulfillment. The New Testament teaches that the death and resurrection of Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost have set in motion the last days, the final phase of God's salvation plan. So, the clock is ticking on when Christ will return to rule over an entirely new cosmos. We are in the last days of the last days. Of course, we don't know exactly when Christ will return, but God does. The plan's already been written. 
And God is orchestrating every event in world history to lead towards that day when His Son will be crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. So those events include war in Ukraine. Those events include coronavirus and all its variants. Remember somebody writing on Facebook, the Delta and the Omicron are no match for the Alpha and the Omega. Nothing can stop God's eternal plan from being fulfilled. In fact, Jesus warned, didn't he? We've been promised wars and rumors of wars before this all happens. And so war in Ukraine is telling us that Redemption Day is getting closer. The fig leaves are getting tender. And you and I are going to be at that ceremony. Verse 9, God made known to us the mystery of His will. Isn't that astonishing? God has given ordinary believers like you and me the inside scoop on the future of the universe. I mean, I struggle to remember what I did yesterday. And my plans for tomorrow are pretty fuzzy, at least until after I finish the Bible reading. But I know what's going to happen to the entire universe, and so do you. And our lives here and now are just the preparation ground for the day when Christ will rule. C.S. Lewis famously said, our lives today are just like the preface of a book. When we get there to the, to the real story, that'll be chapter one of a brand new story where each chapter is better than the one before. And notice here, all of God's plans for the future revolve around Jesus Christ. That little phrase, in Christ, is mentioned nine times in this passage. God will bring a renewed cosmos under the leadership of King Jesus. Hallelujah. And we have been let in on the secret. What a privileged people we are. Some of you will have read Stephen Hawking's brilliant book, A Brief History of Time. Hawking, of course, was a genius physicist who was searching for what he called the grand theory a theory that could explain why everything exists from a scientific perspective. But this is how Stephen Hawking ended his book. He said, the usual approach of science, of constructing a mathematical model, cannot answer the question of why there should be a universe for the model to describe. Why does the universe go to all the bother of existing? I mean, what a question from the mind of a scientific genius. Why does the universe go to all the bother of existing? That is the confusion that reigns in our secular culture. People today don't know who they are or where they're going. Most believe we came from nowhere and we're headed nowhere. But you and I as adopted children of God, we have been let in on the mystery of God's eternal plan. We are heading for a world where Christ will reign. Our blessings are not just spiritual and personal, our blessings are also eternal. And very soon the despair of this current age will give way to the dawning of God's new world. Are you excited about that? So Paul says in this paragraph, which is all about our blessings, he says our blessings are spiritual, our blessings are personal, our blessings are eternal. And fourthly and finally, I promise, our blessings are dependable. They're dependable. That's verses 11 to 14. Verse 11, Paul says, in Him, that's in Christ, we were also chosen, 
having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. And so we return again to the theme of God's sovereignty. We can't get away from it, which brings us such assurance. The word plan here literally means plan in advance. This is an eternal plan whose future is absolutely secure and dependable. God's not making up this plan on the hoof. He's not responding to circumstances outside His control. Oh, a war in Ukraine, I didn't think that would happen. He's got it all, the whole world in His hands. And God has already arranged for you to be presented holy and blameless before Him at the last day. In fact, He has already been there. And God is working out everything today in line with the purpose of His will. And that will is set and firm and fixed. It will happen. That's why Paul can say with such confidence, He who began a good work in you will surely bring it to completion on the last day. Your future glory is as certain as your salvation, your call to salvation was in the past. It's all part of the eternal purpose of His will, which cannot be thwarted. But of course, that plan is being set in motion in real time. And so in verse 12, Paul talks about the temporal order of God's plans. He says, we were the first to hope in Christ. He's thinking particularly of Jewish Christians before all the Gentiles started to flood in. Paul was part of the first generation of believers, but that first generation was no more secure than all the believers who have come to faith subsequently and those who will come to faith in the future. That's why in Acts 18, you remember, Paul was downcast. He was coming into Corinth, an awful city to have to witness for Christ, and he was down, and then Christ appeared to him in a vision and encouraged him with the words, incredible words, I still have many people in this city. So Jesus was saying to this suffering apostle, there are many people in Corinth who are pagans right now, Paul, but they are going to believe in the future. So keep going with your witness and your preaching. All those who will be saved on a future day are part of a plan that was secured before time began. It is not open to question or changeable according to circumstances. The plan is dependable. And God is simply now working out that process in time, calling men and women to salvation all over the world today in line with the eternal purpose of His will. It is mind-boggling, but it's also faith-building, isn't it? And of course, the reason why God tells us to keep going in our witness, in our locality, wherever that locality is for you, is because there are people all around you today who are complete pagans right now. But God will call them to salvation on a future day through your life and witness. So don't lose heart. This plan is dependable. And then Paul brings in the third person of the Trinity. Notice in verse 13, to further underline how dependable our salvation really is. He says, you were marked in Him. You were marked in Christ with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now, a seal was a mark of ownership. Farmers would put a seal on their cattle. Masters would put a seal on their slaves. It was a way of saying, this person belongs to me, hands off. 
And the moment that you and I trusted in Christ, God placed His Holy Spirit as a seal on our souls. God is saying, you are mine. I am never going to let go of you. So notice here how our lives are surrounded by the Trinity. This is one of the great Trinitarian paragraphs in Scripture. The Father planned our redemption. The Son achieved our redemption. So just to say, you might have heard people say, Father, thank you for dying for our sins. That's not theologically correct. I'm sure God is happy to hear it, but it's not theologically correct. The Father did not die for our sins. The Son died for our sins. The Father planned for that redemption. The Father plans it. The Son achieves our redemption, and the Holy Spirit seals our redemption. Each person of the Trinity is devoted to your eternal glory. And that brings tremendous security in an uncertain world. COVID has left us all bewildered. Economies are shaking. Family life is crumbling. Ecologists are warning that it's almost too late for our planet. And Liz Truss might become our prime minister. That was very naughty, I'm sorry. I apologize. But you and I don't need to fear. We were chosen by the Father. We were redeemed by the Son and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. The life of heaven has already begun in our hearts. That's what verse 14 says. The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. When you bought a house in the ancient world, a bit like today, you put down a deposit. The deposit was the first installment of the full price. And this is what God's Holy Spirit does in our lives. He is the first installment of heaven. He is just a taster of what lies ahead of us in glory. So think of those moments in your life when you have been unusually aware of God's presence. Perhaps reading the Scriptures and Christ seemed to come out of the pages of Scripture straight into your heart. Or prayer times when you sensed that you were touching the very throne room of heaven. Or perhaps on a slightly nicer day in Keswick when you looked at a golden sunset or magnificent mountain ridge and you had a special sense of the beauty of God that made your soul sing. Those are moments where God's Holy Spirit is giving you just a taster of what's to come. Multiply those moments by a million, and you will begin to understand what paradise will be like. C.S. Lewis wrote about heaven this way. He said, we do not merely want to see beauty. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. That's what's going to happen when the times have reached their fulfillment. That's what we're going to experience together in glory. What a privileged people we are, how much we have to be grateful for. God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Spiritual blessings, personal blessings, eternal blessings, dependable blessings. Charles Spurgeon once said, hold everything earthly with a loose hand, but grasp eternal things with a death-like grip. May we get caught up today, this week, with the wonder of our eternal blessings in heavenly realms. May we see today's struggles in the light of the glory that is to come that will far outweigh them all. May we see how secure we are, held in the hands of the one who has control over the whole of human history and is directing that history towards the conclusion he has already willed.
may we rise up on wings like eagles as we take hold of our blessings in heavenly realms. Amen? Amen. Thanks for listening. God bless you today.